Who are the greatest players in NFL history wear jersey number 76? Well, historian George Bazika, who specializes in Ohio sports, is joining us because there are some great Ohio players who wore 76 in the NFL. It's all coming up in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen. We have another bonus edition, our football by number series, jersey number 76 tonight. And we have our good friend George Bozica here, a great historian from the Pro Football Research Association and uh, lives in the town of Canton, Ohio, where the Pro Football Hall of Fame is, where pro football started. Uh, George Bozica, welcome back to the Pigpen. Thanks, Darren. Always glad to join you for uh, these discussions. Yeah, we we love to have your expertise and uh, your you know your insight into this. And we've got some uh, guys from that played in your neck of the woods uh, coming up here from from your favorite team. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say yeah. about them. Yeah, I, I was really excited when I uh, when I started getting into this. I was really excited myself. I knew a couple, but I was surprised of the the number of uh, of uh, 76 uh, players uh, the with that number that uh, have Ohio connections. It really amazed me. Yeah, it, it truly is. Well, let me just mention real quick uh, who the Pro Football Hall of Fame recognizes word number 76 mm-hmm. before we get going. And we'll, we'll go into detail on them, if you sure. don't mind. Uh, they, they have in no particular order, Lou Groza, Marion Motley, Lou Creekmer, Orlando Pace, Bob Brown, and the newly uh, enshrined Steve Hutchinson. Correct. Yeah, Steve Hutchinson, his, his uh, enshrinement was completed over the weekend uh, in the class of 2020. Uh, which was uh, really, I actually saw him in the parade. <laughs> yeah. Quite an emotional thing they had up on the screen uh, during his person uh, presenting him. Mm-hmm. I forget who it was that presented him. They uh, had him up there and David Baker, the president of the Hall of Fame, went to, must have been in their hotel rooms uh, earlier in the week or earlier yeah. that day and knocked on their door. And Hutchinson was so emotionally excited about being uh, enshrined. I mean, he was in tears. His family was in tears. It was really a, a amazing moment during the hall of fame weekend to, to see that. And uh, I'm glad to, we got to see part of that. You don't know, think about those big football guys of being in tears, but the guy was just so emotionally happy to, to be there. You could tell he waited a long time and deserved it. Yeah, it's always amazing to me, having been to a number of enshrinements over the years, how many of them get, you know, very emotional in the moment. And that's um, the knocking on the door is a um, a tradition that Dave Baker has sort of started, how he will go. And uh, I've seen other ones that he's done where he'll go to wherever, you know, the person is and they'll knock on the door and announce that they're being inducted and always gets, uh, you know, really emotional response but yeah it's always amazing i know a couple of the enshrinees even say well i, I said i'm not going to cry i'm not going to break down but you know you can hear the voices crack when they talk about you know certain things during their career certain coaches or family or stuff like that so it's 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 nice to see that they're real people i guess you know and i i was i was impressed with a number of the enshrinement speeches uh this past weekend 
Yeah, mo- most definitely. They they all did a great job, and congratulations to everybody from both the 2020 and 2021 classes, uh, especially those guys from 2020. They had to wait a year to to get up on yeah. stage there. So they they yeah they did. That was a long wait, but I'm sure they they were excited. They all looked excited. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. And quite a, a buzz going around Canton last weekend because I believe that was the first football game that could have a first full capacity in like, you know, 18 months or something. You know? <laughs> yeah, it was because last year with the uh, high school season, which played, it's also played number of games are played in the Star County area. Uh, they were not allowed, you know, full capacity for those or for the state playoffs or anything. So it was mostly uh, uh, parents and relatives and, and, you know, that was about it. So it was, it was really unusual last year to see some of the crowds at some of the games because it just wasn't what we're used to in Stark County. Well, a tremendous, tremendous weekend. Uh, your, your city and the pro football hall of fame did a wonderful job. And I think everybody that uh, attended or watched on television uh, felt that way. And uh, it's much appreciated. Kudos to Canton, Ohio. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're, we're, we're very proud of the Hall of Fame. Okay. Um, well, I guess uh, we got to get down to business because we yeah. have some some great players to talk about. And there's a lot of them that were 76. And uh, I'm excited to hear what you have to say about these guys. Sure, sure. Um, well, you, you know, the way we did this last time was we sort of gave the, the best of at the beginning. And uh, I believe without question, uh, no uh, didn't have to put a lot of thought in it. Number one on my list is Marion Motley. Uh, in fact, he's one of the few, if not the only number 76 on here that, uh, that was a uh, running back. Uh, but I mean, I just think Marion Motley's story is amazing. He, um, you know, he was born in, in Leesburg, Georgia, but he grew up in Canton, Ohio. Uh, he attended uh, Canton McKinley high school where he was uh, a running back and he averaged, Believe this or not, he averaged 17.2 yards a carry at Canton McKinley. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually during his years there, the only games they lost were to Maslin and uh, a guy who uh, turned out to be a pretty good coach, Paul Brown, uh, <laughs> who was at Maslin at the time. Uh, wow. And uh, I don't think Paul Brown ever forgot Marion Motley. Uh, I, I guess not. That, did Canton McKinley ever have a second down to have to play on offense? Uh, that's a good question. When Motley on the field, they, they wouldn't have had to. He was he was just amazing. Actually, my dad told me a story. He remembered seeing when he was a, uh, I think he was a, a police boy back then. You know how they had the, the junior police. Mm-hmm. And he said he remembers uh, going to Fawcett Stadium, which is now, you know, Benson. But he remembers going to Fawcett Stadium to see uh, McKinley play uh, Dover. And Marion Molly ran for four touchdowns that day. So he remembers oh. that from his childhood. So um, he was an amazing player. He he later played at Nevada where he starred also, and he played for Jimmy Aiken there. And Jimmy Aiken also has a Ken McKinley tie because he was a coach at McKinley just prior to Johnny Reed, who was a coach during uh, Motley's years. And Jimmy Aiken uh, was, a, was a fantastic coach. Uh, he he also coached um, Norm Van Brocklin at Oregon. So hmm. he had quite a coaching career, but he got his start at, at uh, or at least came to fame. He, he did coach – as I recall before he got to McKinley, but he sort of came to fame in McKinley and uh, had a great team in 1934 in McKinley that went 11 and 0 and just, you know, pounded everybody. In fact, his 1934 team, I'm, I'm sort of digressing here from Paul, from Mary Molly, but it all comes full circle. His 34 team played Paul Brown's 34 team. Uh, both were undefeated at that, that year. 
And it was amazing. They had like 24,000 people. The Goodyear blimp was there. You know, this, this isn't your normal high school, you know, football or, high, or normal high school rivalry. It's, it's one of the greatest in the country. After Nevada, he, he played at Great Lakes for Paul Brown. And then eventually uh, Paul Brown uh, invited him to camp with the Browns. And he took part in the reintegration of pro football. It was uh, two players with the Rams. Uh, Woody Strode, who later went on to be an actor, and Kenny Washington, and it was uh, Mary Molly and Bill Willis for the Browns. Uh, and in fact, uh, we were mentioning before we started taping that you got to see the 11 in downtown Canton this past weekend while you were in town. One of the 11, and for people that don't know what the 11 is, it's basically uh, 11 pieces of artwork that are in downtown Canton that that have been sort of erected over the last couple of years, which are 11 key moments in pro football history. And one of them is a reintegration of pro football. And there's a huge mural that depicts the four players that uh, were instrumental. So not only was Miriam Motley a great football player, he was also a pioneer in terms of, you know, dealing with that. And, you know, from stories I've read, you know, it was not easy for him and for those other players. This was a full year before Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. In fact, my understanding from what I've read and researched is that Branch Rickey was really affected by the fact that, you know, four players could reintegrate a contact sport and it made him believe that he could then break the color barrier in baseball by bringing Jackie Robinson in. Uh, so, you know, it was instrumental in what he did, you know, the year later, bringing, you know, Jackie Robinson and uh, up into the Dodgers organization. And Jackie uh, Robinson was quite a great football player at UCLA. He was, also. he was, he was, he was. Yeah, definitely. And he, uh, uh, in fact, Kenny Washington was also a UCLA. Uh, so, mm -hmm. yeah, so he started a great career with the Browns. He's a member of the uh, 100th anniversary team. He's a member of the 1940s all-decade team. He averaged 5.7 yards a carry with the Browns. Hall of Fame in 1968. Uh, he also was a great linebacker for the Browns because back then, you know, a lot of these guys played two ways. So, you know, Paul Brown always considered him his, his best back, uh, even, even above Jim Brown. Paul Zimmerman, in his famous book, Thinking Man's Guide to uh, Pro Football, said he was the greatest player ever. Uh, Otto Graham said that, you know, he was the greatest all-around fullback that he's ever seen. Uh, so uh, those are some, you know, pretty worthy you know, people uh, that basically felt that he was one of the best ever. So I, I think without question, you know, Mary and Molly is, a, is at the top of my list. Uh, he just was an amazing player. You know, un unfortunately, you know, the, the times, you know, too, he wanted to become more involved as an administrator after he retired. And, you know, he, he always felt that from stories I've read that, you know, that his, his color held him back. Uh, so, you know, there was uh, something sort of a, a bittersweet situation with him. Uh, and oddly enough, he finished his career with the Steelers because uh, uh, after he was, uh, his career ended with the Browns, he did. He finally saw the light side. Yeah, I guess, I guess, <laughs> I guess, I guess. So, yeah, but he uh, actually just recently, um, they're uh, basically, they're going to be, uh, if everything goes according to plan, they're going to be putting up a Marion Motley statue in Canton. Um, so nice. Had some festivities recently to sort of get that going, but it's been a fundraising thing for uh, uh, for a while now. Uh, and a local group of, of people, you know, want, want him to be remembered in, in Canton and uh, felt that it was an appropriate thing to have a statue of him in, in, in the city. So they're, they're working on that. So uh, hopefully we're going to see that here in the near future.
I was downtown Canton over the weekend and, and got to witness all the 11. And I, the uh, mural that you're talking about for the integrations on the side of a parking garage. Yeah, and I'm just going to give a little plug. Uh, I parked in that parking garage. We were trying to find some place to eat. And of course, after the parade, everything was closed. Except yeah. we found the Canton Brewery. So we parked in that parking garage, which is right next to the, the brewery. And yes. what a, I mean, what a great place that is uh, going to great, great food. Uh, by the way, if you're ever in Canton uh, folks, they get a chance to go down there, but the history inside that place was amazing. Yeah. Uh, they had the one, uh, like a little mural uh, set up and they had a picture of, you know, the famous uh, Ralph Hay hotmobile uh, mm-hmm. showroom of the first yeah. uh, meeting, September yeah. 17, 1920. Yeah. Uh, and they had a little caption underneath that the beer that they were drinking was made at that brewery. That was their yes. claim. So yeah. Yeah. pretty cool. And then uh, going down to the restroom, there's like a speakeasy down there. You could tell it was a very old building, but very cool building and a uh, great place to have a bite to eat. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of really good places in downtown Canada. The other restaurant that has a tie to the NFL is Bender's, which is one of the oldest restaurants in town. And actually we had a luncheon there during our um, pro football research association convention last month, but uh, it's also, uh, and it's right next to another one of the 11, uh, the Monday night football a mural. And, and right across the street, almost from the, the Ralph Hay. It uh, is. Founding yeah. of football. Yeah. That yeah. was our intention was to eat there, but they, they were closed that Saturday. Yeah, They were so. closed on Saturday. I think they, I think they opened for a dinner service, but I also remember hearing that, that, a lot of these restaurants, you know, during the summer take a two week, but I'm guessing that they probably were going to be open for the dinner service. But uh, yeah, I, I noticed that too, because we parked near there uh, for the parade and we walked by and saw that they were closed for lunch service, which, yeah. So at any rate, but that that's a, definitely a, gr- a great place because they, they do, they're definitely involved in the history of the league and it's a great place to eat. So uh, in addition yeah. to, as you said, the Canton Brewery, downtown Canton, just to toot the horn for my hometown is they're really doing great things downtown to bring football into the downtown area. I don't know if you had a chance to see Centennial Plaza. Mm-hmm. Um, I did. Yeah. And they have pylons there with the names of everybody that's you know played in the league, which is really impressive. Yeah, that, that was in addition to the 11. And they yeah. had a couple other uh, buildings that were painted. They had one uh, with the um, uh, Canton versus Massillon game on a big yes, you know, mural, yeah. which is yeah. part of the 11. Yeah. And they had another one, I think it was a, a Jim Thorpe that wasn't mm-hmm. part of the 11, I believe. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. very, very cool downtown. If everybody gets a chance to take that walk, it was yeah. very definitely yeah. worth, the, worth yeah, it. It's worth a visit. Yeah. So getting back, uh, my my second person on my list of, of sort of my best of is Lou Groza. Uh, and Lou Groza also has a Ohio tie. Lou Groza uh, played at uh, Martin's Ferry High School, uh, which is actually, this is sort of an aside and interesting sort of tidbit. Uh, Martin's Ferry is the subject of, of what I found. And I, I had known about it before, but it's one of the most famous poems considered by most one of the, like the best poems ever written. And it's called Autumn Begins in Martin Ferry, Martin's Ferry, Ohio. And it's about, you know, the, the poem is actually about like working class towns and everything else. But the, the, the underlying theme of the poem is football. And it, it's, it, if you ever have a chance, anybody that listens, it, you, you, you got to check it out. There's some really interesting uh, things on the website about the poem and, uh, and about Martin's Ferry. It's uh, it's a uh, sort of in the on the far western part of the state that sort of borders on Pennsylvania, and it's it's another area, big big football area, blue collar, steel, and everything else in in, in those areas. Uh, he went on to uh, Ohio State University, uh, and then the Army, and then during World War II, I found this really interesting. Something I didn't know. He was a he was a surgical technician 
during the war, which I thought was really an, an interesting aside. Uh, he had a brother, Alex, who was actually as good a basketball player as Lou was a football player. Uh, he, uh, he played on some national championship teams with uh, Kentucky. Lou was also his best known because of his famous nickname, the toe. Uh, when he retired, he was the leading kicker and leading scorer in NFL history. When he retired in 1967, he was at the top of the list at that time. And he was also, uh, a good offensive lineman. Uh, he of course won the 1950 championship game over the Rams with a game winning vehicle, uh, late in the game. Uh, and he was, I know this is strange to maybe your more, um, uh, younger listeners, he was a straight on kicker, uh, which is, you know, uh, obviously we don't see any straight on kickers anymore, but uh, uh, those of a certain bit, those of us of a certain vintage, remember the straight on kickers. And That's for Lou, sure. Lou was a straight on kicker. He was on the 1950s all decade team. And he's also a member of the hall of fame from 1974. Uh, and uh, I have a, I have a personal story too. Uh, my dad worked for the Debo Corporation in 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 Canton. They were a uh, uh, banking equipment company. Uh, he was a factory worker. I, I grew up in a blue collar home, and Lou grows it during the off season. And many of these guys back during the fifties and sixties during the off season, you know, these players didn't make the kind of money these guys make now. Right. So a lot of these guys did something in the off season. Well, Lou grows it was sort of like a PR representative for a Debo's. And my dad got me a signed Lou Groza photo from Lou Groza when he went through the plant one day. And I still have that in my collection. So that's sort of Pretty my cool. personal, that's sort of my personal Lou Groza story. I also, I also, I also wrote on an elevator one time with Miriam Motley and I didn't even say hi to him. I kick myself to this day. I told, <laughs> I, I told my sons when I got home, I wrote on an elevator with Miriam Motley day and they said, you didn't say hello. I said, no. I said, I guess I froze up in the presence of greatness, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but, but didn't didn't I read somewhere that uh, Motley had talked at a, a bunch of different PFRA uh, conventions and or meetings? I don't know uh, it, if it was. It was before my time. Okay, it was, it was been before my time. Yeah, yeah, it would have been before my time because he he later went to work for the uh, state of Ohio. Uh, he worked for one of the uh, state agencies, and that's how I happened to see him because the building that I I worked in, uh, the office building I worked in. Um, it was, I worked for the city of Akron for 30 years and uh, the office building I worked in was also an office building that had state offices in it. So I believe he was there probably because he was going up the elevator the same time I was, I was going to my office, but I think he was going up to some of the offices and the, the floors above us where they had some state offices. And I looked at him, I knew immediately who he was and I just froze. And then after he got off the elevator, I said, geez, what an idiot I am. I never even said hello. <laughs> Hey, but you got the experience. The the funny thing was a a relative of his in Canton uh, became a city councilman for a number of years. And the councilman knew my dad real well because we would see him at games and always say hi to my dad because they knew each other growing up. And, you know, I I had that as a as sort of a contact to open a, you know, a conversation with him. And I just, like I said, I froze. So, anyway, so yeah. any normal person would, I, I probably would have done the same thing. You're, you get a little bit shell shocked and yeah, uh, you do. You really turn do. fanboy real quick. Don't you? Yeah, you do. You really do. So, uh, so Lou grows a third on my list, uh, continuing with the Ohio theme, Orlando pace, uh, um, one of the great offensive linemen. Uh, Absolutely. 
grew up in Sandusky, Ohio, which is another uh, uh, old traditional high school football town in Ohio. Uh, he also played at the Ohio State University. Uh, he was an offensive tackle there. He became sort of famous for his pancake blocks. Um, he's a, a college and pro football Hall of Famer. Uh, he was drafted, you know, first overall in 1997, seven-time Pro Bowler, uh, three-time All-Pro, uh, 2000s All-Decade team. Um, he, uh, he was obviously uh, with the Rams. Uh, I think we most remember his career with the Rams. Uh, he was part of that greatest show on turf. Uh, he was on that offensive line, uh, you know, blocking for Kurt Warner and uh, obviously – uh, Super Bowl 34 winners uh, uh, in that exciting game over the Titans, uh, where the Titans almost made, had, you know, were yeah. on the on the doorstep and were stopped on the doorstep. Had a half yard line to end yeah, the game. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, and I found out this interesting, interesting tidbit about him. He at one time had a restaurant called, and it just figures Big O's because <laughs> he was a big guy. <laughs> so yeah, so Orlando Pace would be. Uh, definitely third on my list great great choices so far yeah uh sticking with the hall of famers uh next one on my list is lou creekmer uh played for the great 1950s detroit lions teams uh he was a eight-time pro bowler six-time all pro offensive lineman also played a little bit of defense he played at one point in his career he played 165 straight games, which I think is just wow. amazing for an offensive lineman. Sure he was is. a three-time NFL champion with those great Lions teams. Uh, you know, I think sometimes people see the recent vintage Lions. I, I think people forget how good the Lions were in the 1950s, you know, with Bobby Lane and Doak Walker and uh, Horshemeyer and just – they were just, uh, you know, uh, Buddy Parker was their coach, obviously, for a couple of those championships and then uh, – uh, George Wilson, but he also made it into the Hall of Fame. Finally, uh, had to wait a number of years to get into the Hall of Fame. and was well deserving. He made it. Finally, made it in in 1996. Um, and he was just he was known as being just a, an outstanding blocker. So, uh, uh, but you know, I I I I think when when they talk about sort of mini dynasties, I think you almost have to consider those Lions teams, and they were just you know they they were the one team with with the rams that in the early part of the 50s seemed to be able to go toe-to-toe with the browns uh during that run that the browns had uh because you had the lions and then you had the rams and then uh a little later in the decade obviously the giants started to go toe-to-toe um and then they sort of took over as as um uh, in about the mid 50s there when they won their championship in 56 they sort of took over and then you know won the eastern um uh you know, in 56, 58, 59, played the Colts, obviously. And then they had that great run at the beginning of the 60s when Y.A. Tittle was their quarterback with the Giants. But I think people sometimes, when you talk about great teams, I think think most historians know the Lions, but I think a lot of people, you know, just don't remember that far back. You know, it's that pre-Super Bowl history sometimes that's forgotten by a lot of of people. Yeah, yeah, you you go through some of the the old – footage and everything and you look at their defensive backfield that those Detroit Lions teams had you know Dick LeBeau and uh oh, yeah. another great uh, Hall of Fame cornerback and his name escapes me right now but uh there's you know two or I think there's two or three for the defensive backfield that are in the Hall of Fame mm-hmm. besides yeah. LeBeau yeah. So. yeah yeah no they did they always they always had great defenses even going into the 60s with with Alex Karras who obviously was just uh inducted this past well actually his induction ceremony was a little bit earlier in the year because they had the the posthumous uh 
uh, enshrinement ceremony that they showed on NFL Network for some of those that uh, of that that centennial class that had passed away. And, and Alex Karras was one of those, and he was another one that was uh, well-deserving. So, uh, but yeah, they had done you know, all those great defenses during the, the 60s, which I'll actually get into because we have a number 76 that played for the Lions during that time frame, which I'll get into a little later. Okay. Uh, he's one of my sort of uh, extras that that didn't quite make the, the best of, but was, was right behind the best of. Uh, next on my list is Bob Brown, big Bob Brown, uh, nicknamed the boomer, uh, big guy. And also another, here's this, this is, uh, four for five, another Ohio connection. He, he hailed from Cleveland East tech high school. And I got to tell you about Cleveland East tech. Cleveland East tech is actually known more as a basketball school. They had some of the greatest teams in the history of Ohio high school basketball in the late fifties. Uh, they used to just scare teams because just they would actually i heard i never saw it because that was i was i would have been four or five years old then but they won back-to-back state championships back then beat all comers and what they would do to intimidate the other team is they would come out on the floor and every and i heard this so I, i i've heard this and it may be an urban legend but i heard that every player on the team could dunk the ball wow and they would basically all put on a dunkathon during the pregame and that would just, you know, here they were already the best team in the state. And you can imagine what, you know, the other teams looking down here and we got to play this group, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, so that's where, that's where he hailed, but they're no, no more as a, more as a, as a basketball school. They, they might be the original yeah. five slamma jamma. Yeah. Yeah. They were, <laughs> they were something else. Uh, he was, he then went to Nebraska where he also started and he ended up, uh, you know, being a, a, a great, uh, lineman with uh, mostly known for the Eagles also played with the Rams and uh, the Raiders 60s all decade team college and uh, pro football hall of famer um, uh, six-time pro bowler five-time all pro he was known for his great work ethic and he believed his goal uh, from what I read and some of my research was to wear down the opponent physically and mentally that's what he wanted to do by just pounding constantly until you know finally he won that battle and that's that's the kind of play player he was but um you know i i read that his his son who ended up being an attorney said that you know he was a great example you know in the family because he was such a hard worker and had that great worth ethic so he's definitely up there um and then the last of my sort of best of is the person we mentioned at the outset who was just inducted in the hall of fame uh steve hutchinson unfortunately he excelled at uh, that team that uh, we like to call that team up North here in Ohio, the university of Michigan. Uh, that's where he, he excelled. <laughs> you know, the, the, the famous story is, is that, that Woody Hayes, when he was coach at Ohio state, ran out of gas in Michigan and he didn't want to spend money. So he pushed the car over the state line so he could buy the gas in Ohio. <laughs> that was a, that was a, you know, or the other famous story was, uh, the, the year that he beat them when he won the national championship in 68. The other famous story was Woody Hayes in Michigan was, uh, uh, cause he went for two at the end to put 50 on them, which he, he later came to regret the next year when he was upset by Michigan, but they asked him after the game, coach, why'd you go for two at the end? He said, cause I couldn't go for three. So, <laughs> so just a couple of Woody Hayes stories. <laughs> he was, uh, Hutchinson was, um, um, offensive guard, Seattle, Minnesota, Tennessee, seven-time Pro Bowler, five-time All-Pro, All-2000s team. And obviously, as we said before, he was just in, inducted into the Hall of Fame. And he he sort of completes the best of. Those are the uh, 
the six Hall of Famers that wore 76. Marion Miley at the top of the list, Lou Groza, Orlando Pace, Lou Creekmer, Bob Brown, and Steve Hutchinson. No, well, you can't, you can't go wrong with that. That's that's seven, a, that's seven great players. That's, that's a darn good group right there. Um, and I said that, you know, the interesting thing, and that was only because obviously didn't have the, the numbering system that we have today. Mary and Molly was a, a famous running back wearing that unusual number 76. You know, one time Otto Graham wore number 60 uh, during his career. So that was before the, the you know, standardized numbering system. Yeah, they, I guess what happened is when, when they, the, AAFC merged. The AAFC allowed them to wear any numbers they wanted to. Mm-hmm. And when they merged with the NFL in 1950, it took the NFL a couple of years to figure out, hey, these guys are wearing, a, you know, the numbering system's a little off here right. and uh, yeah. it's throwing off, you know, eligible receivers and things of that sort. So the uh, 1952, they instilled the, the rules that we knew for the last four decades until this yeah. year. So <laughs> with the exactly. numbering rules yeah. in the NFL. Yeah. So. So it looked almost like, uh, well, Motley uh, gave up the 76 and went to 36, and then Groza adopt, went from 46 to, to 76 when Motley gave up the numbers, what it looks like with the Browns. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, those are the numbers. Uh, but I, I remember seeing pictures of Motley, too, with that number on. Um, you know, there's that there's that there's that famous video from NFL films where he breaks like it seems like 10 tackles on his way to the end zone, finally <laughs> loses his helmet and everything else. It's one of the most amazing runs that was always played. It seemed like over and over again on NFL films. I always uh, remember that. And then, you know, Groza with, you know, um, he was one of, I think, the, the first true, you know, sort of kicker specialist because, you know, before that, you know, a lot of time the kickers were just, you know, players that played another position and they also kicked. I mean, you can think back, you know, back during that vintage, you know, you had Paul Horney who was also, you know, running back, but he was also a kicker. Uh, and, you know, you had others that, that did that too. Bob Waterfield, obviously a quarterback for the Rams, but he also kicked and punted for them. So, and those are just a couple of examples that immediately come to mind, but, you know, now, kicking obviously has become, you know, a specialized position, you know, and uh, so uh, it's just, you know, amazing. I, I remember too hearing when I was a kid that Groza, um, I remember seeing the kid playing a game too. Apparently he was working with a local kid who was a kicker. And I remember seeing the kid kicking in high school. He was also a straight on kicker. And I remember being amazed at how this kid was kicking the ball. So, I mean, it, it seemed like Groza not only was a good uh, you know, kicker himself, but it seemed like he must have been a pretty good, you know, coach too, in terms of, you know, coaching this kid. He came out of Ravenna, which is another high school here in the area. Uh, it's not a small town here in the area, but I remember being amazed at how this kid was kicking the ball at the high school level straight on. So, uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was something else. Yeah. Very nice. Okay. So now we're out of the, the hall of famers. Yeah. And you, you chose all seven of them. And I, I totally right. agree with all right. seven of them. Right. right. So, now, who do you who do you have uh, coming up that's not yet in the Hall of Fame? We'll call them. Yeah, um, sort of. Um, and you know, these are all people that you know might sometime get in. I think I think one that's interesting to me is uh, Steve Wisniewski, who played for the Raiders, um, eight-time Pro Bowler, offensive guard, two-time All-Pro, all 1990s teams. Um, he played for part of his career at the Raiders with, for uh, John Gruden. And the one thing, some of the things that Gruden said was, is that he was just, uh, you know, an old school pro, you know, uh, even though he played obviously in the 1990s, but he said that he was one of those guys that was always prepared, always an example to the younger players on the team. Uh, You know, he said that, you know, he had this reputation as being such a good ball player and, you know, sort of a, a fierce warrior on the field, but he said off the field, and this is so true, you hear these stories 
uh, you know, he said off the field, he was, uh, you know, just the nicest guy. You know, I remember um, for some of your listeners who maybe didn't make it to the uh, Pro Football Researchers weekend, uh, we had during our player panel, we had Mark Miller, who played for the Browns a couple of years. And uh, Lyle Alzado was a, a teammate for a couple of years. And he was telling the story about how, you know, everybody knows Lyle Alzado on the field you know, what a sort of a crazy man he was. And he was saying that, you know, he, Lyle Alzado sort of invited himself to stay with Mark at his home. And, and he said, you know, he couldn't have been a nicer guy. He was helping his wife do the dishes and everything else, you know? So <laughs> just, you know, you just never know. These guys have one persona on the field and another persona off the field. So I, I think he's sort of, you know, at, at the, at the top of the list of those that have not, you know, the funny thing that I found is I did research on on everybody that was on the list of word of number 76 is a lot of these guys had long careers as, as offensive or defensive linemen, but whether they flew under the radar or whatever, not a number, you know, there was only a handful that were on the list that were regularly either all pros or, or things like that. Some of them had long careers, but not careers that would point them to say that they would be end up in the Hall of Fame someday. Uh, the other one that I thought had sort of an interesting career that, you know, possibly may get some consideration sometime from a, um, a senior committee was John Nyland, who played for the Cowboys uh, during the, uh, the uh, 60s. And he was a guard, six-time Pro Bowl or two-time All-Pro. Excellent pulling guard. He played during both the 66 NFL championship game for the Cowboys that they lost to the Packers. And then also the 67, the famous ice bowl. He played in both those games. Um, and he also played for their uh, Super Bowl champions in 71 when they uh, uh, finally uh, beat the Colts uh, in that Super Bowl. So uh, he was another one I thought just credential wise, you know, the number of, you know, pro bowls and all pro seasons. Um, you know, there, there's some that, that uh, felt that, you uh, Gene Lipscomb, Big Daddy, uh, if he had been able to complete his career, and I'll tell his story here, that he might have been Hall of Fame material someday. He is in the Pro Football Researchers Hall of Very Good, uh, which is sort of our uh, our sort of uh, designation that we give to some players that haven't made it into the Hall of Fame. And a number of players that made it into our Hall of Very Good have later become Hall of Fame members. Uh, he was known as Big Daddy. He played during the uh, 50s and early 60s. Uh, he played with the Rams and the Colts and then the Steelers. It was where he finished his career. Three-time Pro Bowler, two-time All-Pro. Uh, sort of a, a, a sad story. He grew up in Detroit. His mother was murdered uh, during his childhood. Uh, it haunted him for the rest of his life. Uh, he uh, tragically, in 1963, at the age of 31, died of a heroin overdose. Oh. Some, feel, some feel it was self-inflicted. Some argue, including Jim Brown, who was a good friend of Big Daddy's, say that that he wasn't the type of person that would have done that to himself, uh, even though he had a number of demons throughout his whole life. Uh, he um, he played on those two co-championship teams, 58 and 59. Uh, he played in the greatest game you know ever played in 58. Uh, he played on that same defensive line with two Hall of Famers, Art Donovan and uh, Gino Marchetti. So uh, he was just, uh, you know, he was a great defensive lineman who career was cut, you know, was cut short because of the tragedy. But, uh, you know, he's one that 
you know, who knows if he had been able to complete his career because he he actually with the Steelers a couple of years he was with the Steelers, you know, he was having some great seasons, you know, and then uh, you know it was uh, you know it just uh, it just sad. Uh, one of the greatest nicknames probably of all time too in yeah, NFL yeah, history. Yeah, a- yeah, Big Daddy. Yeah, so uh, uh, so he was another one that sort of uh, caught my eye. Uh, another one I just think has a really sort of interesting backstory is Rosie Greer. Uh, Rosie was a uh, defensive tackle with the Giants and Rams. He played on the Rams uh, or the Giants, I should say, 56 NFL championship team, which I, I mentioned earlier. He was a to- two-time uh, pro bowler and a three-time all-pro. So, uh, you know, he was a very good player on the field, uh, but also he had an interesting life off the field. You know, he was you know, 6'5", 285 pounds. And um, after he finished his career, he he became an entertainer for a while. I, I used to remember seeing him on TV at the time. He he actually was a singer. Uh, <laughs> he was a, a minister for a while, and he became really actively involved in, in community work. Uh, and here's his sort of interesting aside. He was one of Bobby Kennedy's bodyguards. Really? And... and and when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated in Los Angeles uh, in 68, Rosie Greer was the one that subdued the killer, Sirhan Sirhan. No kidding. And he wrestled the gun out of his hands and uh, held him. And so uh, that's sort of an interesting aside. He was one of Bobby Kennedy's uh, bodyguards at that time. Wow. I didn't so, know that. That's, that's yeah, a great story, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he also, at one time wrote a book called Needlepoint for Men. He was a big, he was a big here's a guy, 6'5", 285 pound pro football player. He was an, a big enthusiast for Needlepoint. So, <laughs> oh, Rosie Greer is full of surprises here. Rosie Greer, yeah, Rosie Greer. I, I remember seeing commercials at the time when he would appear on a variety show, and they would always say, and I remember the one because I sort of thought it was comical. I don't know why they said, when Rosie Greer takes a hold of a song, you know, it, it's like, you know, Oh, you better watch out or something like that. It was like, you know, so, and they showed him, you know, big guy here singing and everything. So, uh, but yeah, he was, um, he had quite a career, uh, you know, for a variety of different things that he did. So, uh, (laughs) yeah. So I, I just thought Rosie just, I think is an interesting story. Uh, Another one we got is uh, Steve McMichael, uh, Mongo, who played for the uh, Bears as a defensive tackle, mostly for the Bears, two-time All-Pro or two-time Pro Bowler, All-Pro, played on that great 46 defense in 85, Buddy Ryan's great 46 defense. Uh, of course, won the Super Bowl, considered one of the best single-season teams ever, uh, and went on to have a successful pro wrestling career with a, with a nickname like Mongo. What else would you do? Uh, <laughs> of course, we have another famous Mongo, uh, our, uh, uh, Alex Karras, obviously, from the Blazers. Blazing Saddles movie, but uh, Steve McMichael was another one that sort of whose backstory caught my eye. Um, to uh, Bills fans, I know they will remember Fred Smurless, uh, great nose tackle for 14 years, also played with the Niners and the uh, Patriots, five-time Pro Bowler, five-time All-Pro. Um, uh, of interest to me, because I'm, I'm a Greek-American, he's also a Greek uh, of Greek descent, uh, and uh, he actually dabbled in starting a political career after his retirement, but uh, didn't really go anywhere with that. But uh, he was another one whose, whose backstory sort of caught my eye. Um, 
great, great name, uh, Rocky Freitas. I, I hope I'm saying that last name right. He was a one-time Pro Bowler with Detroit. He was a native Hawaiian, uh, and he played tackle. And his real name is Rockney Crowningberg Freitas. I just thought that has to make some kind of all-name team somewhere. That's for uh, sure. Af- after he retired from pro football, he had a long career, too, which I thought was interesting, in education at the University of Hawaii. So, uh, but nice. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and then going back to my Alex Karras story, coming back full circle here, Roger Brown. Uh, Roger Brown played with the Lions and the Rams, uh, uh, mostly known during the 60s, six time Pro Bowler, two time All Pro. Uh, 1962, he was named Outstanding Defensive Lineman. Uh, and this I thought was an interesting story because I, I had not heard of it before. Uh, he was part of the, of course, we all know that the Detroit has the traditional Thanksgiving Day game they played for years and years and years now. He was part of the 1962 game known as the Thanksgiving Day Massacre when the Lions beat the Packers 60, 26 to 14. And you got to remember, this was during the, the Packers' run, early run there in the 60s when they'd already won the, they lost the 60 championship under Lombardi to the Eagles. Then they won in 61, and they would go on to win in 62. Um, they beat the Packers, but the Lions beat the Packers that day, and they sacked Bart Starr 11 times. Wow. And Roger Brown was in on seven, seven of those sacks. Can you imagine? I, I was just shocked when I saw that. And, and his other sort of interesting side story was he appeared in the movie Paper Lion. Uh, again, that's, that's a reference that people of my vintage know what Paper Lion is. But just to tell the story, George Plimpton was uh, sort of a, a famous author back in the 60s. Uh, and actually, he, he became sort of a personality because he appeared in movies and stuff like that, too. But George Plimpton wrote a series of uh, sort of sports books where he participated in the sport. And then he wrote a book about it. He did one on, on pro golf tour called The Bogeyman. And he did Paper Lion because he was able to get the Lions organization to agree to allow him to play with the Lions during uh, training camp. And he eventually got into an exhibition game and uh, played one series was hilarious. What happened to him? I mean, I think, I think, (laughs) I think he, I think he was, Based with like a fourth and 40 something by the time he, he ran his four series. <laughs> uh, but they made a movie of the book and Alan Alda of, of MASH fame played George Plimpton in the movie and a number of lions from that era. If you ever find the movie on a streaming service, it's great to watch because it's great because you see all these players from the sixties. Vince Lombardi is in the movie because because he he first went to the Packers to see if the Packers would do it. And Lombardi said that they went, but Lombardi appears in the movie with him meeting with Alan Alda as George Plimpton, you know, and and making the request that they'll let him do it with the Packers. But, but Lombardi didn't want to have any part of it, but uh, Roger Brown appears in the movie. Alex Karras is actually the one, I I guess he, he showed his acting ability even back then. He was the one that was sort of the star of the lions that were in the movie because he appears in a lot of scenes and stuff like that. But it's a great sort of, uh, you know, curio of that time. If you can find it. I I actually about a couple months ago found it because my, my, uh, my son had never seen it and we watched it and got a big kick out of it because, uh, uh, you know, all the playing Plimpton was, was sort of fun to see too. 
since he, he went on to, you know, obviously become really famous playing Hawkeye and, and MASH and going on to a really successful movie career. But Roger Brown was one that I thought had, you know, sort of a, a really interesting story. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, after that, there was, there was, as I, I said earlier, there was uh, a lot that, you know, had, um, you know, uh, guys like Jumbo Elliott, who was a, a tackle with the Giants, uh, you know, one-time Pro Bowler, played in the uh, 1990 Super Bowl uh, with the Giants. Uh, this the the Super Bowl where they uh, they uh, beat the uh, the Bills on the kick on the uh, field goal at the, the missed field goal at the end. In the wide uh, right. Just, you know, <laughs> he just he just Jumbo Elliott. He just he sort of just jumps out. You know, he didn't really when you look at it. You know, he was only a one-time Pro Bowler, but I think he had a great name. I think he's one of those kind of guys that everybody sort of remembers of, of the night. Oh yeah. Yeah. Jumbo Elliott, you know, you just remember because of the name, but you know, as, as a career wise, he doesn't necessarily like, you know, stand out, you know, and, th- and that's, that was the thing with a lot of these guys, guys like, you know, uh, you know, uh, Chad Clifton, Fred Miller, uh, uh, Chris knee, you know, these are guys that, you know, maybe were two to four time pro bowlers with certain teams, maybe played on a Super Bowl championship team. Uh, but just didn't, rise to that level of, of say the cream of the crop uh Dwayne Brown's another one who played with the uh Houston and Seattle you know four-time pro bowler one-time all pro Flozell uh Adams if I pronounce your first name he played for Nick Saban at Michigan State before Nick Saban went on to all of his success at Alabama I, I loved his nickname he was 6'7 335 pounds he is nicknamed the hotel <laughs> And he's a five-time Pro Bowler, though, uh, offensive tackle with the Cowboys and then one season with the Steelers. Uh, so, you know, you had a lot of players sort of in that sort of, you know, um, you know, vein that, you know, don't necessarily like stand out as a best of or even maybe the, the a secondary group. But, you know, but, uh, you know, you know, I guess, you know, some, you know, with the, the teams they played for, maybe can make a case for them. You know, obviously some of them played on Super Bowl championship teams. So obviously they were members of a, of very good teams, you know, but, uh, you know, they just don't stand out quite as much as some of the others that we mentioned here tonight. Yeah. Okay. Now I, I have a question for you. I mean, a great, great selection of, uh, of players and some great, uh, um, research on them, George, that was excellent. Um, okay. So we, we have the seven hall of famers we put on our list. Uh, six, 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 six. Yeah. Uh, well, we put, uh, Hutchinson Motley, on Motley, Groza, Pace, Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. Six. I'm sorry. Hutchinson. And then we, we talked about a couple that we thought would possibly be Hall of Fame worthy, like uh, Wisniewski uh, and uh, Nyland. Nyland and uh, uh, Gene, uh, Big Daddy Lipskin, you know, so who's in, the, okay. in our Hall of Very Good. Yeah. Okay. So that takes us down. Do we need uh, two more by my count to make an even 10, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess if I had to choose two more, I think I would go with Roger Brown, the lion, the great lions player. Okay. Uh, and I think some would probably, you know, disagree with me. I, I, you know, I almost feel like I need a 10, a, a 10 B and a 10 C. Cause I, I, I have a hard time choosing between McMichael, uh, Smurless and, uh, um, Rosie Greer. Um, you know, okay. Think, well, Hey, we can do that. Cause it's, well, it's and, our, our and, list. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so I, I think I would say, uh, you know, I think I would say McMichael, Smurless and, and, uh, Rosie Greer, you know, um, uh, so I hope okay. I said, I, I, I know it, it's, 
Fred Smurlis. I may have said, uh, I, I think that's the way I said it earlier. I hope I pronounced that. Yeah, right. no, yeah, yeah you said it. You said it right on. Smurlis, yeah. So at any rate, yeah, I think those would be my my ten A, B, and C. I just I just have a hard time picking between those three. I think I think if you look at his credentials, uh, Smurlis is maybe the the best of the three. He he played on those Bills teams just prior to them making the Super Bowl run. And I know in reading up on him, a lot of people felt that, you know, he was responsible for, you know, those teams that sort of brought the Bills along to the point to where then they blossomed, you know, in the early 90s with that, you know, with a four-year Super Bowl run that they had. Um, which, you know, I, I always say this to people too, you know, the, those Bills teams, everybody remembers them for losing the four Super Bowls. But, you know, that was still one of the great teams in pro football history. I don't I don't care. It's like the Vikings during the – the, the you know the early years in the 60s and 70s the Vikings lost four Super Bowls too but you know you got to remember those great Vikings teams they had the one year with Joe Cap uh, from the Canadian Football League was their quarterback but then they had all those great years with Fran Tarkenton and you know I just you, know, you can't not with Bud Grant as their coach too you just you know had a number of Hall of Famers Mick Tinglehoff you just can't not say that that wasn't a great you know team in history even though they didn't win the ultimate prize those are just two examples of two teams that were really amongst the best ever. And, uh, you know, I just, but, you know, we're, we're very much about number one, but, you know, those are, those are great teams, you know, and there, there's, those are just two examples, you know, there's others, you know, uh, what if the Cowboys had never started winning Super Bowls, but yet they lost to Vince Lombardi two years in a row and two of the greatest NFL championship games ever in 66 and then in 67, a lot of people actually feel that even though the ice ball, the ice ball is so well known and renowned that the 66 championship game was actually even a better overall game because it was, you know, uh, so I, you know, it just, um, yeah, I, I think, I, I don't always think greatness needs to be defined by winning the ultimate prize. So uh, you know, just, I agree with you. I agree with you. So, Some great, great team. When you, when you uh, take home that Lamar Hunt trophy four years in a row, I mean, that, yes. that's, that's pretty big news. You know, it is. Uh, it is. It they is. did a great job. It is. It is ran into some hot teams uh, in the Super yeah, Bowl. Yeah, they did. They did. It just never quite worked out for them. And then, you know, th- thinking back to the time, too, I think it started getting in their heads a little bit. Uh, I agree. I yeah. agree. So, uh, well, George, uh, that, that is a great list. And uh, like I said, great research. And uh, we really appreciate you you're coming on here and uh, helping us out here with this list and uh, giving us some great uh, insight on the history of, uh, you know, first of all, Canton, your, your home city, uh, all these Ohio players we got to discuss and uh, a little bit about their high schools in the local areas too, as well as all, all the uh, other players that you talked about. So I appreciate you coming on once again. Sure. And uh, thank you very much. Darren, before we quit, I have one story I wanted to tell. Oh, uh, most this, certainly. This is, this is from the Super Bowl weekend or the, uh, sorry, the Hall of Fame. We just talking about Super Bowl, Hall of Fame weekend. I just okay. wanted to share this because I just thought it was, it was, a fantastic story. Um, I was I was on the parade route right towards the beginning of the parade on on Saturday, uh, about four blocks from the beginning of the parade, right where um, if people have seen the eleven, sort of the first of the eleven is the place where the the league was was the birthplace of the league, uh, which is basically it's no longer the the building that was the Hupmobile showroom. It's now, I think, the Ohio Power Company, but they actually have a plaque there and they also have a a, a piece of artwork there, a sort of a sculpture that depicts the, the birth of the NFL. Uh, my son's local radio personality, and he was doing the, the parade on radio with uh, another personality from the radio station he, he worked for. And uh, uh, he actually worked for a radio station here in Canton until 
that was one of his last events because he's moving to a new radio station starting next week. But we, I was standing behind him in the little tent that they had set up for the radio station. And uh, Edger and James came by. Uh, uh, and those that have been to the parade know that all the enshrinees ride in the parade, normally, uh, in most cases, with their presenter. Edger and James, obviously, uh, great, you know, running back with the, with the Colts. Uh, Jim Ursay, the owner of the Colts, was his presenter and is riding with him. So as they're riding by, I notice, and a number of other people notice, that Jim Ursay pulls out a, a bag, a, sort of a blue canvas bag, and reaches into it and starts pulling cash out. And he starts throwing cash at the crowd. And here it turned out that he was throwing $100 bills at the crowd. And he had a bag full of $100 bills <laughs> that he was throwing out during the parade. Uh, I don't think it's made much you know, national news. I, I Googled it today and I, I saw that it was mentioned in a couple of places. And I thought this was interesting. I didn't even know this. Apparently, during a training camp or something in 2014, he did the same thing at training camp. So uh, we actually talked afterwards to some members of, of Edger and James family afterwards, and they were saying it was, it was just a way for them to give back to the community. But we we estimated conservatively that there may have been $50,000 worth of $100 bills in that. And I have to say, I, I've seen many Hall of Fame parades. And when I was a kid, all I ever got was gum and candy. <laughs> and I certainly didn't get $100 bills. And I didn't move fast enough to get one on Saturday. But I just thought, that was just, I thought, one of the, the great parade stories from this, you know, this this past year. I just thought that was just, you know, unbelievable. And they said once people started seeing it, I, I looked up as, as they were going up the street past us. People were trying to converge on that car. <laughs> I, read, I read on one of the social media sites that somebody walked away with like 10 hundreds and people were walking away. Some people maybe one, but it was just, it was crazy. I, I just had to tell the story. I just thought that might be of interest to your listeners. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it definitely was. It was absolutely crazy. And Edger and James had probably one of the most entertaining speeches of the weekend too, uh, when he uh, was referencing, you know, the the hard life he grew up in, and everybody said, you know, he would be in trouble with the law and everything, and he, yeah. you know, he chose the, to stay on the straight and narrow, and he uh, opened up his gold jacket and said, no, "That's why I'm in inmate number uh, three fifty seven, or whatever his number is, going into the Hall of Fame." So yeah. I thought that was a pretty good line too. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of really good acceptance speeches. Peyton Manning had a good one. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Charles Woodson, um, you know, Calvin Johnson, I thought was one of the best of the weekend, but uh, yeah, there was a number of good ones, but yeah, I agree. I so agree. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know we were sort of closing shop there, but I, I wanted to No, I'm, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you added that. I don't think the, the national audience maybe heard much about it, but it was definitely a buzzing here locally. So uh, I just had to tell that story. I just thought that was, that was something. Excellent. I'm glad you did because that we needed to hear that. So that's when you you hear so many poor things about the the owners and the players, and especially Mr. Ursay the last couple of years, he's got some bad press. But uh, yes. here's something him giving back to the community. That's yeah. a good thing. Yeah, it was really something. So, yeah. well, well, thank you for sharing that, and thank you for sure. uh, sharing your knowledge and uh, your uh, expertise in the history of football and uh, teaching us all something here today. So I uh, thank you very much for that. Thanks, thanks, Darren. Always a thrill to do this.
At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings you sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of you unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876 including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, ROW number one, for access to the full Row One catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row One Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee, and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.